a 111 win and 51 loss season versus an 89 win, 73 loss season. A 22 game lead in their respective division, the NL West, over the other team. A 334 run differential, which was basically 100 higher than the next second place team in the entire league, the New York Yankees, who had plus 240. This team had plus 334 versus their opponent, who had a plus 45 run differential throughout the entire season. And it didn't mean a single thing because the Dodgers could not win the three games that mattered. And so the San Diego Padres win in four games over the Los Angeles Dodgers to move on to the NLCS. And that pretty much epitomized what makes playoff baseball so great. Welcome to the Weekend Sports Wrap Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your host today, James Timberlake. Excuse my voice. I'm a little under the weather, still recovering from a little bit of a cold, a little, little influenza virus, if you will. Um, getting over it, over the hump. That's why this this episode's uh, coming a little bit a day late, but uh, we're getting over it. And so we're recording it here on a Wednesday instead of normally on a Tuesday. So that's why it's a day late, but I'm a little under the weather. Make sure you uh, rate the podcast, follow the podcast on any of your po- uh, on any of your podcasting platforms that you listen to it. You can listen to this anywhere: Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you want to listen to it. You can listen to it. You can also listen to it on sharedmedia.com and podcastwyoming.com. If you are listening to it on any of those podcast platforms, like I said, please remember to give us a follow and give us a rating. I'd really appreciate that. Thank you very much. Yes, the Padres knock off the Dodgers three games to one in the NLDS. 111 wins for the Dodgers. Arguably their greatest season ever, I would say, regular season of all time in the history of that historic franchise. And it didn't mean a single thing because they could not get out of the divisional series against their arch nemesis I would say at least in the past three years their arch nemesis in the San Diego Padres divisional arch nemesis in the San Diego Padres Padres get hot in three games and sometimes that's all it takes in in uh, the MLB and in the MLB playoffs and that's what's great about the playoffs anything it is still pandemonium it's complete chaos it is uh it's awesome. MLB playoffs is great. That's that is the great thing about it. You can win 89 games on the season or whatever. However many you win, 111 wins versus 89 wins, have a 22 game lead above the person you're going to face in the NL West or in the uh, in the wild card, but lead by 22 games in the NL West over your opponent. And you know what? If you can't win the three games that matter or the four games that matter in the playoffs, then whatever you did in the regular season does not matter at all. And that is what is great. You could be one of the greatest teams in the history of the regular season like the Dodgers were, and it does not matter because you couldn't win the three that did matter. It was awesome. It was cool to see. San Diego's been itching for a team like that and really a game like that that's mattered for a long time. They The first time they've had fans in the seats for a playoff game since... I think it was the early 2000s, the late 90s, maybe something like that. Back in the Tony Gwynn days, it's been a long time coming for Padres fans. They did. They were the Padres were in the playoffs during the 2020 season when it was COVID. It was kind of a, all over the place. You know, you know, I, I don't think you can really count a lot of what was going on there, but I won't put an asterisk by a, a trophy or anything like that, obviously. But um, yeah, it, for the Padres fans, it was uh, it, it was cool to see. They were celebrating like crazy. They rallied around a, a goose that landed in the outfield during game three. Two, I want to say, in game two, a goose that landed in the outfield and sat there for a while, and that became the rallying call for the rest of the series and probably will be for the rest of the playoffs, depending on how far they go here. Um, But yeah, it was cool to see for the Potters. And, you know, arguably that wasn't, I mean, that was the biggest upset, but that was a, 
one of the uh, uh, it was contending with one of the bigger upsets in their own in their own bracket. The Phillies beat the defending champion Atlanta Braves three games to one as well. On the other side of the bracket is the six seed beating the two seeded Braves, and they move on to the NLCS. So on both sides of the bracket, you have the two best teams in the American League and the in the American League in their championship series: the one seeded Astros taking on the two seeded Yankees, and then on the National League side, it's the complete polar opposite where you have the two lowest-seeded teams taking on one another in the championship series, the five-seeded Padres against the six-seeded Phillies. We're going to see either a 1-5-1-6 matchup or a 2-5-2-6 matchup in the World Series, and that's baseball for you. That's why everybody loves playoff baseball. Now, granted, the Padres-Dodgers game, that was that was the highlight, I think, of the weekend in terms of baseball uh, playoffs, I think, for a lot of people. Then on the opposite side of the spectrum, you had probably the... Worst game uh, of playoff, ba- I mean, it's, depending on what perspective you bring to the table, uh, I'm somebody that baseball already has an issue when it comes to the amount of time that their games already take. So you throw in an 18-inning, nothing-nothing game that gets, you know, one run in the top of the eighth inning thanks to a home, uh, 18th inning thanks to a home run. Uh, it doesn't help the game at all. And that's what happened in the Astros-Mariners game. 18 innings of nothing-nothing baseball until the top of the 18th. And Jeremy Pena hits a one uh, a solo shot to win one nothing, and the Astros win the game one to nothing, and win the series, sweep the series against the Mariners in their divisional matchup, three games to none off of that that uh, that singular home run in the top of the 18th. We had a fantastic walk off home run between uh, that those two teams with Jordan Alvarez hitting a walk off home run against the Mariners in Game One of that series, which was a fantastic game. Super fun to watch. High scoring. I think it was like 8-7 to seven was the final score, if I remember correctly, after the walk-off. And then you had the complete juxtaposition to no scoring at all, 0-0, 18 innings, about a six-and-a-half-hour baseball game. And I was like, you know what? This is they. This is the problem with baseball. This is why, and especially on a Saturday, when you, and you're competing against a fantastic college football slate in the middle of the Tennessee-Alabama game, you're never going to draw people to baseball with something like that. You're never going to ever, ever draw anybody to your game when it's 0-0 through 17 innings and six hours into the game. You haven't seen barely any action. There were 40 strikeouts in that game alone. 40 strikeouts from both sides of the team. Both both teams had 40 strikeouts combined in just that one game. And you're asking people to watch that in play, even if it is playoffs, you're asking people to watch that over the fantastic Alabama-Tennessee game. It's just never going to happen, baseball. It's never going to happen unless there's some major changes. And I think the runner on second base was a great rule that they had implemented for a while, uh, mainly for the COVID restrictions and stuff, just so they could speed up. I mean, I don't even know exactly what, why they did that, but I thought it was a great rule change that they had for it for a while. Then they got rid of it for the playoffs. I think they were still doing it in the regular season this year, and I wish they would have kept that for the playoffs. Move them to first play, first base if it's such a big deal. If you don't want them, somebody on second base, if you're the opposing team, move them to first base. Automatically have that double play ball in play, just move and have somebody on. So we don't have to sit here waiting basically the entire time for somebody either hit a home run or just, just get on base so that we can have some sort of, some sort of uh, 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 nervousness or whatever uh, hype around the extra innings. There's nobody getting on base in extra innings. Then nobody cares about what's going on other than the fact that there's possibly a home run that could be hit, which is what finally happened in that eighth inning, 18 inning marathon. That was so just, head scratching and frustrating because every time it felt like somebody was up at the plate they were either gonna you know fly out pop out or strike out or something like that because that's how bad the offense was in that game so the juxtaposition that that came about from 
both, I mean, honestly, the Dodgers and the Padres game, as well as the Astros and the Mariners game, and then over to the football game between Alabama and Tennessee, which we'll talk about in a little bit, uh, was truly, I mean, it should have been eye-opening for the MLB, to be honest with you, because nobody in their right mind was watching that Astros versus Mariners game over the Alabama-Tennessee game and thinking that Astros-Mariners game was more entertaining. Like, there's no way. There's no way you're watching both those games and thinking that. No way. No way in hell. And that's what's wrong with the MLB right now. That That's something that they need, 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 need to fix. Um, moving on here a little bit. We did have a couple of the NLC or one NLCS game already get underway. That was yesterday, Tuesday. Uh, the Phillies beat the Padres 2 to nothing in San Diego. So the Phillies are already up one nothing over San Diego in that best of seven series in their National League Championship Series. Uh, two uh, up one nothing. Still have to uh, still still uh, one more game on the road in San Diego, and they come home for two with the Phillies, and then as needed, so on and so forth. So, a couple more games going there, and then the ALCS starts on uh, today, Wednesday, October nineteenth, with the Astros, uh, the Yankees at the Astros in Game One, and that should be a fun series as well, one versus two, like I said, and a lot of history going on there as well between those two teams. Probably a, a rivalry between these two teams that really only kind of pops up, I would say. I mean, they play each other, I think, once or twice a year, but it really only pops up, I think, more often than that, that people really notice in the playoffs. They really, these two teams do not really like each other, mainly because of 2017 with the Astros. Astros beat the Yankees to get to the World Series, and everybody knows what happened to the Astros in 2017, the the, 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 um, the cheating scandal and so on and so forth. But um, they've played each other since then. And the Astros have never lost to the Yankees in the playoffs. And we'll see what happens here. I mean, the Astros should be, the Astros, I would think, should be favored in this series just because they have the better pitching staff. Their bats aren't as good as the Yankees, I would say, top to bottom. But they have the much better pitching staff, I would say. And the Yankees are coming off a very long series, a much longer series than they probably would have liked against the Guardians, whereas the Astros are getting a decent amount of rest after sweeping the Mariners in three games. The Yankees won in five, but they also had uh, two postponed games as well that they had to think about and uh, ended up being a lot longer series just in terms of time taken for those games than they probably would have wanted. So I'd be surprised if the Yankees... Uh, I would be surprised if the Yankees won the series overall. I wouldn't be surprised if it was seven games or anything like that, obviously. But I think the Astros probably deserved to be favored in this series uh, overall in the ALCS. And for the NLCS, we already saw the Phillies win game one. I have no idea what to expect out of that series, to be honest with you. That one is a complete crapshoot. Like I said, five seed versus six seed. Neither of these teams were expected to make it fa- past their uh, divisional series. Nonetheless, the wild card round. Uh, but here we are. Now they're both in the... No, they're both in their championship series, and uh, I, I think the Padres can maybe eke it out. I mean, it kind of feels like they have that momentum, but the Phillies' bats are looking pretty good. Kyle Schwarber hit a bomb last night that I didn't think was even possible. An upper decker in right field of San Diego went 488 feet. I didn't think it was possible to hit in the second deck in, in San Diego in right field, but he did it. So I don't know. I really have no idea. Maybe I, the Phillies, it seems like their pitching staff has gotten a lot better over the last week or so. Uh, overall, I mean, their starting pitching and, you know, their bullpen's always been a question mark, especially the past five years. Um, but I, I really don't know what to expect out of this championship series. Either way, either one of these teams getting past this series is a win for both of them. I don't think either of them coming into even September or into October thought that they would be getting to this point. And, you know, here we are because, you know, baseball is going to baseball. So that's the MLB right now as it stands great time of year i love the mlb playoffs strictly for the reasons that we saw on uh in that dodgers padres series because you really had you really cannot come in 
with any expectation other than you're playing for the 16 wins that it takes or however many it is. It's so confusing now. However many it is to get to the World Series and win the World Series. Whatever you did beforehand really does not matter because anything can happen in the MLB playoffs. And it should. And it was fun to see. And it was a great series between Dodgers and Padres. And fun fun divisional series overall for the most part, I think, for uh, for a lot of those games. All right, moving on here. We're going to take a look at NFL Week 6. That week, we're going to recap that. Uh, we had a terrible Thursday night game. Everybody remembers that. Commanders versus the Bears. It was 12-7. to Nobody watched it because it was a terrible game again. Uh, Thursday night football, Amazon Prime has been uh, kind of getting shafted, to be honest with you, in terms of their quality of games that they're getting. Uh, two weeks in a row with two real bad games, I would say. Uh, and then this upcoming week, I don't, I don't think it gets any better, to be honest with you. Uh, bad game this past week and then upcoming this week. It's Saints versus Cardinals, which I don't know how much that really brings to the table either. Uh, at least you get some sort of dynamic quarterback in Kyler Murray, even though he hasn't looked that great so far this season. And maybe more dynamic in terms of both sides of the offense as well. I mean, Alvin Kamara for a running back for the Saints is good. I mean, Chris Olave, I don't know what his status is. I think it's up in the air because of concussion protocols for the Saints. He's a good player. I think DeAndre Hopkins should be back as well for this next game, which will be big for the Cardinals. So a couple more storylines, I would say, but two two teams that I don't think are really uh, vying for playoff spots at this point in time, both set at two and four and the Saints, uh, you know, and the Cardinals and in the NL West for the Cardinals. That's a hard division and the Saints. I mean, they're in the NFC South and that's not a great division. So I guess they could be vying for a playoff spot depending on who you ask, but I, I don't think they're a great playoff team. Either one of them are great playoff teams. So I don't know what to expect from, from Thursday night football anymore. I mean, it is football and football. It's just like, you know, you'll take any of it, even if it does come in a commander's bears, disgusting garbage game. I mean, you'll take it. Sure. Uh, but after a while, you know, you kind of feel gross after watching a game like that. And I did feel gross after watching a game like that. I was like, I didn't I didn't need to spend my time doing this. And lo and behold, I was I spent my time doing that. And I spent my time watching Commanders versus Bears. And here we are. Uh, another thing that was interesting to point out, um, I was really surprised that they they at least took note of the Daniel Snyder uh press release threaten, I guess, uh threat towards the NFL during that game. During the Thursday night game, because of course, I mean, Daniel Snyder, of course, is going to release that threat that he made towards the NFL before their game, because it's going to be a talking point. Everybody's going to see, watch the commanders play and be interested in what's going on there just because it is Daniel Snyder, the owner of the commanders. If you aren't aware, Daniel Snyder, kind of scumbag. I mean, I'll be honest with you. Not a lot of people like him just in general, a terrible workplace environment that he's uh, cultivated over in Washington, Uh, sexual abuse, sexual assault allegations against uh, the 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 front office in general in Washington, and uh, I think a lot of people, the NFL included, a lot of the owners in the NFL are doing their absolute best to try to usher him out. And the thing that the the big story that came out on Wednesday, this past Wednesday, uh, was Daniel Snyder basically releasing a press release and threatening the NFL and their owners, being like, "Look, I have dirt on all of you. If you come after me, I'm going to release that dirt and and all of you." And um, that was, you know, if, if he was kind of saying, if I'm going down, you are you are all coming down with me was kind of the uh, the the sentiment that we got from the statement that was released by Daniel Snyder. And, uh, you know, that's peak Daniel Snyder. Of course, he's going to do that. Uh, it kind of feels like maybe a bluff just because of how loud he's being with it. Uh, maybe because he's, you know, uh, what you do, you know, making as much noise as possible to try to scare people away, uh, even if you don't have, uh, you know, the, the armament that you're saying you have. 
I think that's possible as well. But, it, you know, I'm not going to deny. I mean, we've seen what's happened. You know, Robert Kraft is a great example. You know, he's, you know, not exactly the most up to, to uh, you know, up to up to snuff guy in terms of what he does off the field. If I mean, a lot of people know what I'm talking about. Um, so I wouldn't put it past a lot of these owners to be to to be to say that they've been doing similar things in the past of, of questionable ethics. Uh, so. I don't know what to believe from Daniel Snyder, to be honest with you, but do I think this is going to help him? No, I think he's going to be ended as an owner in the NFL and an owner of the commanders, uh, maybe quicker now than before. And if, if he does have what, what he's saying that he does have the dirt on all the owners, then, uh, maybe he gets extended out an extra five years or something before he gets cut away as an owner of the commanders. I don't think there's any way he remains an owner of that franchise an NFL franchise in general, Uh, For much longer than five years, it feels like. And I would be surprised if he lasts longer than that Uh, or even up to that point, to be honest with you. I think he's basically on his way out and he's just making as much noise as possible before he leaves to try to hold on for as long as he can. And I really don't buy a lot of the stuff that he says, even though, like I said, there there are prime examples from a lot of different places to make me think otherwise. But um, I would like to be proven wrong as well uh, that at least some of the owners in the NFL. Uh, he said he said he was putting private investigators on at least four or five, I think he said, of NFL owners uh, that he knows have done things incorrectly or whatever. So we know Roger Goodell is at least going to these owners, all of the owners, and saying, what do you have? What is the dirt that you had that we need to prepare for if we're going to kick Daniel Snyder out of the NFL. I mean, he's absolutely having those conversations with those owners at this point. And uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I, I, I don't think, like I said, I, I think Daniel Snyder's probably got a five-year time limit regardless of what happens here. And I wouldn't be surprised if that gets kicked up a lot quicker depending on what they find out, what the other owners find out, and what Roger Goodell finds out. He actually, what, what Daniel Snyder actually has on these other owners. So we'll see what happens. But Daniel Snyder, I couldn't believe they talked about it on the on the broadcast uh, of the game on Thursday. I could not believe they brought it up. Kevin, or excuse me, Al Michaels brought it up. Kirk Herbstreit, uh, Kirk Herbstreit kind of commented on it. It wasn't very long. You know, it's not like they had a, you know, overarching debate about it or anything like that, but I was very interested to see that they actually brought it up on an NFL broadcast on Amazon. I was very confused to see that, to be honest with you, because I thought in, in all their, you know, glory in the NFL in itself is definitely a propaganda machine. That's what they do because, you know, it's a big business. A lot of, you know, a lot of big businesses kind of do that. But I was surprised that the NFL allowed Al Michaels to go up there and talk about it just in general. I was surprised to see that. Anyways, moving on to the rest of the NFL. We had a, we had a lot of uh, interesting early hour Sunday morning, Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, depending on where you live. Sunday after Sunday morning games for us. Um, upsets over the weekend on Sunday. Uh, Falcons beat the 49ers. Now, granted. I don't know how much you really take away from it if you're the 49ers or the Falcons, for that matter. Uh, 49ers defense basically was entirely banged up. They were playing backups basically the entire game against the Falcons, and the Falcons were able to take advantage of it for the most part, beating the 49ers 28-14. to I saw uh, Marcus Mariota won the NFC Player of the Week, Offensive Player of the Week, if I remember correctly, and I think he had like 160 passing yards or something like that as the quarterback, which I thought was funny, Um, but he also, I mean, he played pretty well. I think he had like a 93% completion percentage as well, so he was keeping the ball out of danger, you know, and he ran for a decent amount of yardage, He scored a couple touchdowns, rightfully so. I mean, Falcons... Big upset over the Niners, I would say, but you know, let's tone it down on the Niners just a little bit because they were playing very, very injured in that game. Another game, uh, the Jets beat the Packers. That was probably the upset of the week, other than maybe 
the Bucks losing to the Steelers, but I think the Jets versus the Packers, maybe that was a more eye-opening because it, it, it kind of showed how far back I think the Packers really are, I think, for a lot of people. Because the Packers last year, we they, you know, they had that blowout in that first game against the Saints, and everybody was kind of having the same nervous approach. They're like, what's going on here? Why? Why are they losing like this? And they rattled off, you know, they finished the season first in the NFC North, ended up being one of the top teams in the conference. But this season, uh, I think that Jets loss to the Packers really showed everybody, okay, the Packers really have some problems here. And on the opposite end, the Jets, I mean, they have some legit guys here. Brees Hall looks like a stud. Quentin Williams was fantastic up front on defense. Uh, Sauce Gardner for the Jets looks like a legit shutdown corner for the Jets. Uh, uh, They have a history of their shutdown corners. Darrell Rivas, obviously Rivas Allen. This looks like the next in a long line of those guys. I won't say he's going to be as good as Darrell Rivas, obviously, but I'm just saying the next step in that line looks like it could possibly be Sauce Garner because he is a stud. He is a fantastic player. He is locking up locking up wide receivers out wide against a couple different teams in a row now, and he's had two fantastic games back-to-back, and uh, he looks like a stud. He's going to be a great player. Is it possible that we see the Jets have both the Offensive Rookie of the Year in Brees Hall and the defensive rookie of the year in in uh, Sauce Gardner. I'll just put that question out there for you. How about that? What if that were to happen? That would be incredible. And uh, the Jets, I mean, the Jets are a good team. I still don't know if they have a quarterback. Zach Wilson, no idea. I don't think he's that great. I don't think he's terrible, though, either. I think he's very middle of the road, but I don't think he's going to take the step that would make him a superstar that could really lead the Jets to being, uh, you know, the leaders in, in the AFC East or anything like that. I don't think he's that close to being, to being that guy, but... I think it's fair enough to assess that the Jets have good enough pieces around him offensively and even defensively. Uh, they have guys, if you will, on both sides of the ball that I think they can kind of shadow uh, or cover up Zach Wilson's misgivings in terms of uh, playing quarterback. I think he can be very much a Jimmy Garoppolo for the Jets if they if he needs to be based on the amount of talent they have around him. And I think the Jets are, I mean... I think the Jets are pretty good. Uh, four and two, you know, they still haven't played a, a couple of guys this season. Uh, you know, the big names this season, you know, the, the the Bills, the Chiefs, they haven't played any of those big AFC guys. They are going to play the Bills here in the early part of uh, November. They don't play the Chiefs this season, I don't think. Yeah, they don't play the Chiefs this season. But they have their first game against the Bills. That'll be a good testing point for them. Also, I mean, the Patriots, the Bill Belichick has feasted on the Jets basically since Bill Belichick has been with the Patriots um, and they have their first game against him on Halloween weekend. That'll be an interesting test for them as well. Uh, but they dropped games to the Ravens, the Bengals, two solid teams in the AFC, but they beat the Browns, the Steelers, the Dolphins, the Packers. I mean, a couple of good wins there for the Jets. And I think they're, I think they're a legit team. They have the talent around Zach Wilson and just the entire, you know, key positions that they need to have talent. And they have it there. Robert Sala, he had the receipts. Like he said, he has the receipts and, uh, you know, he's, he's marking off the receipts. He's doing it. I mean, they're doing a good job in, in New York. I'm, su- I'm surprised to be saying that, but the Jets seem to be playing some good football here early on. Uh, the Steelers over the Bucks. that was the other big upset that we saw this weekend uh, in the early hours, in the early games, I would say. Uh, Tom Brady looks a little lost out there right now, I would say. Um, the team just doesn't look very good. I mean, he was 25 for 40, 243 yards and a touchdown. I mean, that's pretty, I mean, that's fine. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't a stellar performance by the Buccaneers, but their defense also didn't play good. They gave up a game-winning drive by Tr- Mitch Trubisky, of all people, a couple third and longs that they gave up uh, that allowed the Steelers to go on and win this game. And uh, the Bucs are 
I think there are a lot of questions to be asked and a lot of questions that need to be answered for the Bucks because they do not look like one of the better teams in the NFC. And I'm wondering if Tom Brady's now like, why am I doing this? You know, like, what? this is what I came back for. This is why I had Bruce Arians fired. I mean, he's not going to come out and say that. But, I mean, that's kind of what he did. Um, but, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know what to expect out of the Bucks to be honest, with, throughout the rest of the season. Uh, even if they do get a lot of their guys back healthy, I know their offensive line is still a little banged up. Um, and their defense should be at least beating the Steelers, holding the Steelers to, you know, not a, a game-winning drive in the fourth quarter with Mitch Trubisky. So I don't know what to expect from the Bucs. It's kind of a head-scratcher at this point. I'm confused, and I don't know what to expect from that team in the NFC because they were supposed to be one of the better teams in the NFC. I still think they are one of the better teams in the NFC, but I think if the uh, the Eagles and the Bucks played right now on a neutral field, I don't think I'd, I don't think I'd be taking the Bucs in this situation. I think the Eagles would be taking... I like, I'd be interested to see the spread in that game just to see the betting confidence from Vegas, but I don't think a lot of people will be taking the Bucks in that game uh, just because, just based off of what we've seen so far from both of those teams. So I don't know what to expect from the Bucks. The NFC itself is kind of wide open right now other than the Eagles. So who knows where they end up here in a few weeks and where they end up overall. And then uh, finally, we had a great game, Chiefs versus Bills, the afternoon game. It's weird the 4 o'clock hour has kind of turned into the more prime time uh, best time for football games in the NFL. Uh, I'd rather be watching the four o'clock games than, I mean, the Sunday night game this week wasn't terrible. The Eagles and the Cowboys, that was a pretty good game, even though the Eagles jumped out to a quick, like an early, an early big lead that never really felt like the Cowboys were ever going to come back from, but um, they ended up winning. The Eagles ended up winning by nine. So they did kind of come back from it, but it, after the, the Eagles went up 20 to three, felt like the game was already kind of over. Um, but I mean the Bills Chiefs and that that should be your Sunday night game. I mean that it's weird that the the four o'clock games, the one four o'clock game that Tony Romo and Jim Nance call are is becoming more or less the game of the week, if you will, instead of the Sunday night games or the Monday night games, which is what it kind of used to be. And I don't know, it's just interesting to see it from a broadcasting perspective where that's kind of ended up. Um, but regardless, Bills. It, they look like they've taken that step last year. We in the playoffs, 13 seconds was too much for the Chiefs um, in the playoffs for them to come back and beat the Bills. 13 seconds in that division or in that um, the divisional round, right? Yeah, it was the divisional round. In the divisional round, 13 seconds was too much left on, uh, too much time on the clock for Patrick Mahomes to go down and score, and that's what he did. He went down, they kicked a field goal, and they ended up winning that game. It looks like the Bills have taken that next step. They added Von Miller, which was a huge addition, obviously. And they've taken that next step, and instead of 13 seconds, they left about a minute left for the Chiefs after going up 24 to 20. And they left, or excuse me, uh, yeah, 24 to 20. It felt like they were gonna. Uh, it felt like that was too much time. It felt like we were getting a repeat of what we saw last year's divisional. But the Bills, they took that next step. They added Von Miller, and instead of the Chiefs having a repeat of last year, Chiefs driving down, scoring a touchdown to win this game, or what have you. Um, they get they they pressure the quarterback. They pressure Patrick Mahomes into a bad throw, and Patrick Mahomes throws the interception. And I think they can kind of get that monkey off their back. The Bills can. And it feels like that one was a a big win for the Bills overall. They finally, uh, I mean, they beat the they beat the Chiefs last year in the regular season as well. But this one felt a little bit different because it was under the similar circumstances that they were in the divisional round last year, where the Chiefs had the chance to go down the field and dri- drive down the field and win the game on a touchdown. But the Chief, the Bills were able to hold off the Chiefs by. Taking that next step, like I said, Von Miller off the edge, forcing Patrick Mahomes into a bad pass, and the Bills were able to win the game off of an interception. 
So I still think the Bills are the team to beat, to be honest, in the entire NFL. But, you know, you can't count out the Chiefs. I mean, they're going to learn from their mistakes as well. They have all season. They did last year, obviously, when they beat the, the Bills in the playoffs after losing them in the regular season. So I, this is bar none uh, what everybody should pretty much be expecting in their AFC championship game. This These two teams between the Bills and the Chiefs. Um, and it's kind of them or nobody uh, heading into the to into the Super Bowl uh, out of the AFC. In my opinion, I don't. I would be very surprised for a lot of these teams to have come out of the AFC based on what we've seen so far. Um, just, I mean, even the the Bengals got a win against the Saints, but they don't look like that team that they did last year. They were relying on a lot of big plays last year, heading into the playoffs and into the playoffs that led them into that Super Bowl run, and they haven't been able to get a lot of those this year. Uh, and you know the the Ravens have looked a little a little a little head scratchy, if you will, a little hesitant so far this season. So I don't know. Dolphins as well. Who knows? We'll what we'll get out of them because they've dealt been dealing with a lot of injuries uh, on, on their in their quarterback situation. But they were looking very good the first three weeks of the season. Um, so I don't know where we'll see them. But it's kind of wide open, other than the Bills and the Chiefs in the AFC in the NFC. No idea, other than the Eagles. Um, but they haven't really been tested yet this year. I would say they've gotten out to a lot of early leads. They haven't had to come back or anything like that so far this year. So I'd be interested to see what happens there with the Eagles in the NFC. So it feels like Bills Chiefs. Those are the top two teams in the league, and then it's kind of a pretty big steep drop off to the Eagles, who are six and zero. Which is funny to say that Bills are five and one, the Chiefs are four and two. And the Eagles are 6-0, but I think the Eagles are probably the third best team in the league right now behind both the Bills and the Chiefs. I just trust what the Bills... I mean, the Eagles are coming off a pretty not uh, a pretty lackluster year last year, and I think we can all trust the Bills and the Chiefs more given the track record that we have with those two teams over the past few seasons than we can the Eagles, and I think that's fair. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's the NFL. Uh, also, really quickly, um, Broncos. Woof. Woof! This is my third, third, uh, second or third weekend in a row where I'm going woof. Uh, they should have won that game. They had every chance in the world to win that game. I think uh, Russell Wilson started off perfect in that in that game against the against the Chargers on Monday night, uh, and then they kind of threw it all away. Uh, I think if I remember correctly, reading he uh, Russell Wilson was three for eleven for I think it was like nine yards or something like that. Something really bad in the second half and into overtime. I mean, it was it was it was bad. I mean, it was a bad game. Russell Wilson, like I said, started off good. He started 10 for 10, but he finishes 15 for 28 for 188 yards and a touchdown. Justin Herbert didn't look that much better, though, to be honest with you. He finished 37 for 57, 238 yards and an interception, and they ended the game uh, on a uh, uh, Dustin Hopkins game-winning field goal in overtime. That was just kind of a bad game in general, to be honest with you. Again, a Broncos, uh, who would have thought? Broncos primetime game uh, ended up being a bad game. Who would have thought? Not me. I would not have expected that. No, just kidding. Please stop putting them in prime time. I'm begging you. I'm begging you, NFL. I don't want to see this team in prime time anymore. I'm begging you. Um, so, yeah, that was... Uh, I, I really don't know what to expect out of the Broncos anymore. They also... I mean, Melvin Gordon was basically benched in that game as well. They're starting running back after Javante Williams got hurt in uh, a couple weeks ago towards ACL and his MCL. So he was out for the rest of the season. Looked like Melvin Gordon was going to be the next guy off the bench to be the guy. I mean, he'd been the backup. Basically, the one-two punch with Javante Williams all season long and into last season. And it looked like Melvin Gordon was in for a lot more carries and a lot a bigger role in that offense. And then they signed Latavius Murray uh, out of free agency uh, off the waiver wire, basically. And Latavius Murray basically takes over Russell or Melvin Gordon's role as a whole. He had 15 carries, 66 yards, no touchdowns for either of them. But Melvin Gordon only had three rushes for eight yards. So 
I don't know what to expect out of that. Uh, it looked like Melvin Gordon was kind of upset about that, obviously. I mean, he's kind of losing his job to Latavius Murray in that game, and I'd be interested to see what happens to that running back group over the next few weeks, over the next week, to be honest with you. I have no idea what to expect out of the group. And then Jerry Judy, uh, Greg Dulcich looked good as a tight end, but Jerry Judy had three receptions for 54 yards. I you know, I don't know. I, I really This team is just kind of I, underachieving, obviously. That's kind of the... The, the, the way you can kind of just state it as a whole. They have been very underachieving. Other than the defense, the defense has been fantastic pretty much on pretty much every game they've played. The defense has been stellar um, pretty much every game. So, I, I you know, the, the offense, I mean, they're, they're running. They, if they haven't run out of time already, they are very quickly running out of time. Lose to the Chargers. Lose to the, uh, I mean, the, uh, lose to the Chargers that are far behind them in the, in the NFC West now. Kansas City is still in first place in the AFC West, obviously, but they're they're tied with Los Angeles at four and two, and they are running out of time if they want to try to catch those two teams and make the playoffs this season uh, at two and four. So, you know, Denver fans, I, I I pour one out for you, I guess is what I would say, because I I really don't know what to expect from this team moving forward. It feels like if Russell Wilson just gets one of those games and kind of gets out of the funk, then maybe they'll right the ship, if you will. But up until this point, I. I I have no reason to believe that that's going to happen anytime soon. So I really don't know what to expect. Uh, he just has not. He's looked completely out of sorts. And we've got, you know, the propaganda from from him and the Broncos saying he's got a lat injury or whatever and a hamstring injury now. But it's like, I what about the first three weeks of the season? I mean, he didn't have any of those either. And it was still not a great performance from him in any of those games. So, you know, I, I don't know what to expect from this Broncos team. I, I guess we'll find out. They, they have uh they have a, a two o'clock game this next week, this upcoming week against the Jets, if I remember correctly. Yes, the Jets at home, and I mean, right now as it stands on Wednesday, Denver's only one point favorite, and the over under is thirty eight. And right now, I I think you would be uh, remiss to not be taking the Jets in that game, just based on what we've seen so far from both these teams. The Jets have definitely been overachieving, and the Broncos have been underachieving. So fade the fade the Broncos if you're better in that situation. If it's uh, if it's me. Uh, all right, moving on here. We kind of talked about college football a little bit, and there and there wasn't a whole lot to talk about other than, uh, I mean, Tennessee, Alabama, obviously game of the year, a uh, lot of fun to watch. That was one of the coolest sights, I think I can say, that I've seen in a college football venue in a long time. It's basically been 15 years that Tennessee's been the rival to Alabama, but basically only by name. Tennessee has not had any sort of effect on the way Alabama plays their game and their game and their games against each other or anything like that until now uh, 52 49 over Alabama Tennessee's a legit contender I think they're third ranked third in the in the AP poll now uh, fantastic game I mean it was fun to watch Bryce Hall Bryce Young 35 for 52 455 yards but the big game was came from the Tennessee offense Hendon Hooker 21 for 30 385 yards five touchdowns and an interception and then Jalen Hyatt, the receiver for Tennessee, six receptions, 207 yards, and all five of those touchdowns went to him. It was a great game. Uh, this was kind of the, this to me was more the inkling of what NIL can kind of do for college football. Maybe the the bottom feeders that have kind of always been the bottom feeders won't get to the point of, you know, even the Alabamas or, you know, whoever, the NC States or anything like that, even to that point. But I think that the middling teams that were in the SEC will have a, be- a better chance, that have the money behind them, will have the better chance to beat the teams like Alabama. That is where I think the NIL money 
will actually come to benefit college football. There will be more parity in these games than I think a lot of people would expect. Because Tennessee, it's not like a lot of people are going to Knoxville because of the experience you're going to, I mean, it's not like there's a huge nightlife in Knoxville, Tennessee. If you're an 18 year old kid to go hang around, you know, there's not a lot of uh, booming population in Knoxville, Tennessee to go and hang around. But if they got the money, uh, you can draw anybody to anywhere. And I think that's the great thing about Tennessee. Same thing with Alabama, though. Like, Don't get me wrong. Alabama's never had that draw either. But they at least have the, you know, eight championships behind their belt that, you know, you you come here and we'll make you a winner, period. I mean, obviously, Alabama has that draw. Tuscaloosa has that draw just because of Alabama. Um, but those are the things that Tennessee is going to be able to do now because of NIL. They have the money to, they have the backers and the money to bring these kids in and look, not say basically, look, Knoxville is not the most glamorous place to live in in the world. We understand that. But look, you come play for our football team for two years or whatever, one year, two, three years, however long you want to, we'll give you this amount of money because we have the money to do that and we have the the backers to be able to do that. It's the same thing that goes for Tennessee, same thing goes for you know your Penn States, your your TCUs, whatever your Oklahoma States, so on and so forth. That's the that. <coughs> that's the parity that I think um, the variety, I guess more so that NIL should be able to bring in with the NIL money. So well, I we'll see what happens. It was very cool to see though. It kind of felt like that was the first step, the first big win for NIL, if you will. And then, um, you know, everything that happened after with the the storming of the field and everything and the, the cigar game, as they call it, it was cool to see. It was awesome. It was awesome to see nothing really, nothing really peaks college football more than a game like that, where you have two rivals, one rival that hasn't really been relevant in 15 years, finally, finally gets that puncher's chance and they knock out the team that's been kind of bullying them for the last decade and a half. And that's what college football is all about. It was a ton of fun to see. Plus the storming of the field. I mean, that's all kind of things you only get in college football more so than any other professional sport, I would say, especially in America, uh, that you don't get in any other professional sport. So it was a good weekend for college football uh, in general. That game and then Utah versus USC, a late-night upset. That was awesome to see Utah wins on a, a game-winning two-point conversion, basically. They stopped the, the game-winning drive for USC, uh, gets stopped short, but Utah basically wins that game on a game-winning uh, game two-point conversion. Fans storm the field there. Great win for Utah over USC. I mean, that was fun to see as well. Just a lot of good games. TCU over Oklahoma State in overtime as well. Oh, college football is sitting pretty right now, and it was it was a good weekend for college football. Uh, finally, let's wrap up the day here with it's NBA time. NBA season tipped off yesterday. I wish I would have got the podcast out yesterday because you know before the games, but the game two games did play were played yesterday on NBA tip off. Uh, but it is it's tip off time. We've got. A lot of uh, a lot of interesting things that happened over the summer. We've got some interesting teams that should be better this year. Interesting teams that should be a lot worse. Uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, some of the some of the storylines that headlined the summer heading into the season. We had Kevin Durant and his trade saga in in Brooklyn. Uh, they're tumultuous. The Brooklyn Nets tumultuous 2021-2022 season ended with a four game sweep at the hands of Boston. Uh, and then Durant asked to be traded according to the athletic, uh, several teams considered a move, most notably the Celtics in a framework build around Jalen Brown, but no team was willing to meet Brooklyn's astronomical asking price. And then in August, Durant met with Joe Sy, requesting the Nets owner choose between him or the combination of coach Steve Nash and general manager, Sean Marks, according to the athletic Shams Charinia. Um, and then when that, when that gambit failed uh, to create a valuable market, Durant basically was like, all right, hey, we're cool. 
you know what, fine, we'll shake hands, we'll play out this season. So we'll see what happens with the Brooklyn Nets. That'll be an interesting storyline as the season goes along. If the Brooklyn Nets aren't where they want to be come trade deadline, it'd be interesting to see if they think about moving on from Kevin Durant, even Kyrie Irving or whoever. I mean, that is a, a group of egos. I'll put it that way. That is a a hefty group of egos on Brooklyn's team between Ben Simmons. Yes, Ben Simmons, that Ben Simmons. I think a lot of people forget that he plays for that team now as well. Uh, Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. I I don't know how well those will mix. I mean, Kevin Durant and and, uh, Kyrie Irving have already kind of meshed, so I don't think there's a problem there. But him with Ben Simmons, with Kyrie Irving, I don't know how well it'll mix all three of them together, and we'll have to see. And if they aren't where I think they want to be halfway through the season come trade deadline, I think it'll be a lot more interesting uh, to see if those trade discussions don't pop up once again. Uh, another big storyline that came in over the summer, Robert Sarver, his workplace misconduct in Phoenix that led to him uh, basically putting the team up for sale. Uh, he's on his way out after the league released the results of a 10-month investigation that largely corroborated allegations of sexual harassment, racially insensitive language, and many other forms of workplace misconduct uncovered by ESPN's Baxter, Baxter, uh, Baxter Holmes excuse me, in a November 2021 investigative story. The NBA initially announced a one-year suspension and $10 million fine for Sarver, a punishment that several players, including James and Suns star Chris Paul, deemed too light. A week later, amid escalating public pressure from players, the team's jersey patch sponsor, one of his minority partners, and several others, Sarver announced his intention to sell the Suns and WNBA's Phoenix Mercury. Mercury. So, we'll see what happens with the Suns uh, because of this. I think that is a huge, huge off-the-court issue that they're going to have to be dealing with throughout the season. I mean, Robert Sarver, like we say, I mean, he's on his way out, which is good for the Suns. I think it would be a lot bigger issue if he wasn't on his way out, obviously. Um, but I think after what came out from that big from that investigative story from Baxter Mahomes, I don't know why I want to keep doing that. Baxter Holmes. Baxter Holmes from ESPN. I think a lot of what came out was, you know, obviously the nail in the coffin, more or less, of Robert Sarver and a lot of disgusting stuff from Robert Sarver. If you if you haven't read that investigative story, please go read it from Baxter Holmes. It is um it's bad. I mean, Robert Sarver does not deserve to have an owning spot in the NBA. And uh here we are. Uh, you know, we'll see what happens. He's basically been forced to to sell his team, and it'll be interesting to see what the Phoenix Suns and how they play in light of that, in light of a, in light of a lot of the other uh, things uh, uh, with him going around that that franchise. So we'll see what happens with uh, with the Suns. Another one that happened recently: Draymond Green gave Jordan Poole a nice right hook during a preseason practice. This four-time champion and former NBA Defensive Player of the Year. Uh, defensive player of the year winner struck Jordan Poole and needed to be separated swiftly, according to Shams, Anthony Slater, and Marcus Thompson. Two days later, TMZ posted a video of the exchange, which showed Draymond Green advancing to Poole, basically hitting him with a nasty right hook that more or less crumpled uh, Jordan Poole. It looked like he knocked, he got knocked out. It looked like Jordan Poole got knocked out. Uh, Green, who apologized to Poole and the team, was fined by the team and took a brief leave of absent, as, absence as part of his punishment. I failed as a leader. I failed as a man, is the quote he said. Um, but he was out there last night in the game between the Warriors and the Lakers. And, um, I mean, and all looked flushed out in that game. They won that game handily over the Lakers in their in their ring ceremony, if you will, in their banner ceremony. And, um, I mean, I, I really don't know how much more to take from this. I, winning will cure everything, as they say. And I think that's another Example with Draymond Green, I think once the Warriors get going and Jordan Poole and Draymond Green seem to be playing just fine together, I think a lot of people will kind of forget that this 
even happened in preseason, to be honest with you. Um, it was just a lot of uh, interesting preview, uh, uh, preseason talk that led to a lot more than what it actually... I mean, it is a punch. I mean, I'm not going to argue that. If I got knocked uh, unconscious, which is what it looked like happened to Jordan Poole by a co-worker of mine, then yeah, I'd be upset. But then again, it's a lot different for the NBA and for basically any professional sport, as a lot of other uh, you know insiders have come out and said and basketball players have come out and said that it's a completely different working environment than what we normally see in the regular world. So I don't know what to expect from this. I don't think there's going to be a lot more coming out of this, especially if the Warriors are going to play like they did last night against the Lakers. If they play like that throughout the rest of the season and you know they come out as the two seed or the one seed or whatever, I think a lot of people are even going to forget that, that this even happened um, at this early point in the year. So we'll see what happens there. Uh, the Ime Adoka scandal was another big storyline out of the summer. The Celtics head coach, who was due to start his second season after leading Boston to the NBA Finals in June, was suspended for a season by the team just before training camp for what he deemed as unspecified violations of team politics. Adoka was having an intimate relationship with a female staffer, according to The Athletic and several other media reports. Though both parties initially conveyed to the organization that the relationship was consensual, the the woman recently accused Adoka of making unwanted comments toward her as well. Sources told uh, Shams. Lead assistant Joe, Joe Mazzula took over as the interim head coach. Adoka's future beyond the season will be made at a later date, according to the organization's statement. So that's another interesting situation. Ima, I think a lot of people, Ima Adoka, uh, a highly respected coach for the Boston Celtics. Uh, first season led them to the NBA Finals, a great defensive schemer. They had one of the great turnarounds, I think, in the league last year. I think before the All-Star break, a lot of people were thinking the Celtics were a mid-level team. Uh, you know, heading into the back half of the season, and then they just turned it up a notch in the second half after the All-Star break and really led a huge charge to get one of the better seeds in the Eastern Conference and then lead it all the way into the NBA Finals and um, weren't that far away. They did lose to the Warriors, but I don't think they were that far away from losing or from taking that series as a whole either. So uh, we'll see how much of an effect that actually has on the Boston Celtics. They played last night as well, and they beat the 76ers. They looked fine in that game, Um, but we'll see how it looks as the season goes on, if Joe Missoula has what it takes to be uh, that interim head coach as the full season. And uh, another interesting question, if Joe Missoula leads this team to a, you know, a one seed and back to the NBA finals, uh, how much do the Celtics feel the need to bring back Ime Adoka? You know, that's another question that'll probably be asked later down the season. If Joe Missoula is playing, leading this team as a head coach very well, um, as well as Ime Adoka did, then I would not be surprised to see the Celtics just be like, you know, why do we need you? In this situation, if we have another guy that's doing the exact same thing in Joe Missoula. So uh, that'll be an interesting situation to keep up on as the season goes along. Uh, The Jazz as well. uh, They completely tore down two seasons ago. The Utah Jazz owned the NBA's best regular season record and point differential. But after back-to-back playoff disappointments and amid crumbling internal chemistry, new team president Danny Age abruptly pushed the team reset button what I saw, quote, what I saw was a team that didn't believe in each other. Ainge said in September, Coach Quinn Snyder departed in June as well. Three-time NBA Defensive Player of the Year, Rudy Gobert, was traded to Minnesota in early July. And face of the franchise, Donovan Mitchell was dealt to Cleveland in late August, despite weeks of rumors linking him to New York. He went to Cleveland in exchange for those two starters and fellow starters, Royce O'Neal and Bojan Bogdanovic. Uh, Utah received an overwhelming haul of first-rounder, uh, first-round picks and a number of rotation players that could stay or be flipped in future trades for more first-round picks or more picks in general. The Jazz still have veterans to deal, such as point guard Mike Connolly and former NBA Sixth Man of the Year Jordan Clarkson as well, but should be firmly in the mix to secure a high draft pick come this next se- come this season. So yeah, the Jazz 
the jazz experience, I guess, is is what you want to call it, has more or less come to an end uh, with Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert, and then Quinn Snyder as well. He was he's gone now as well, so uh, it'll be a whole new face for the Jazz, whole new uh, type of expectations for the Jazz. They're not going to be very good this year or the year after that. They're probably going to trade Mike Conley and Jordan Clarkson uh, relatively soon, maybe not relatively soon, but a team that's maybe a a point guard away or what have you, a shooting guard away or whatever. uh, We'll be looking for guys like that for Mike Conley and Jordan Clarkson for sure, and they should be able to to, to take a pretty decent haul from those guys uh, depending on that situation. So we'll see what happens there. That's some of the NBA summer storylines that came up over the offseason in the NBA. We're going to take a look at some teams now, including the Denver Nuggets as well. But just taking a look, looking down on the Eastern Conference and the Western Conference as a whole, your best teams in the Eastern Conference are going to be Boston, uh, Philadelphia, Milwaukee, Brooklyn should be in there as well. A couple wild cards, Toronto should be decent, Cleveland should be decent, Miami, the Heat are always kind of a wild card. It feels like they push in and become one of the top seeds every season, even though they don't doesn't seem like they have the talent to do so, but feels like they kind of sneak in every single year as one of those top teams. But Miami haven't really added anything either. Uh, they've lost a couple of pieces, but haven't haven't added a whole lot in the offseason. So we'll see where they end up. The Atlanta Hawks also should be one of the uh, one of the above 500 teams, if you will, in the Eastern Conference. But I think it's kind of a four man race, in my opinion, in the Eastern Conference between Boston, Philadelphia, Milwaukee. In Brooklyn and out of those four, I think I like Milwaukee the best overall. Uh, Boston, maybe. I, I mean, I would give Boston a, a slight, you know, a, maybe a slight advantage, if you will. Not a huge advantage, uh, but they did add a couple of pretty decent pieces, but they are losing. I mean, obviously, the story behind Ime Adoka and stuff, that's all interesting uh, storylines to head into the season to have to deal with. Celtics also added Malcolm Brogdon, which is a great pickup at shooting guard. Danilo Gallinari, Danilo Gallinari just tore his ACL in a uh, World Cup game, a FIBA Euro Cup game, something like that. So he's out for the rest of the season. But Malcolm Brogdon will be a big piece that they added at shooting guard in the Bucks. They added Joe Ingles from the uh, Jazz as well to add to their shooting repertoire, if you will. So I think the Bucks are only going to get better, and I think the Bucks are probably the best team in that conference, but also the Sixers. I mean, the Sixers, I mean, I should probably say it's a three-team race, to be honest with you, uh, between the Sixers, the Bucks, and the Celtics. The Nets, again, a complete wild card. If they can get Kyrie Irving and uh, and uh, Kevin Durant, Ben Simmons, all to kind of mesh together, then that team should be the team that comes out of the Eastern Conference. But those top three teams between the Sixers, the Celtics, and the Bucks are going to be very good. I mean, the Sixers added P.J. Tucker, D'Anthony Melton, Daniel, Daniel House, who does a lot of stuff under the table, if you will, uh, that goes unnoticed but is very important, as well as Montrezl Harrell, another guy that does stuff like that. And then they lost Aiden Green, of course, uh, DeAndre Jordan, but he didn't play very well in the playoffs for them, and Paul Millsap as well. So I think they added, the Sixers added a lot of really good pieces. I think they're going to be looking for a guy like Tyrese Maxey to really step up on offense as well. And uh, if he does take that next step, then I don't think there's any reason for the the Sixers to not be favored to win the Eastern Conference either. Um, but there is a lot more leaning on the additions that they made uh, more than, I would say, the Bucks, where Joe Ingles, you can kind of just slide in anywhere and be one of the best, um, be a great shooting you know guy that spreads the floor for a guy like Giannis. Uh, and I think the the Bucks, I think the Bucks are probably... Probably the best team, uh, in my opinion, in the East. I think they can get better on defense than they did last year. Uh, they were 14th in defensive rating, third in offense, and they have the makings to be a really solid defensive team. And I think, uh, I think the Bucks are probably, in my opinion, 
with all the stuff surrounding the Celtics, the question marks in the Sixers that have been there for a while uh, in the Sixers in general, and a lot of the question marks for the Celtics going forward. I think the Bucks can kind of wade their way through the rest of the East and make their way out of the Eastern Conference. In the Western Conference, it gets a little more dry, I would say. I think the two top teams uh, are by themselves, maybe a third, maybe a third, if you will. Uh, The Clippers, they're healthy again. They're deep. Um, If Paul George and Kawhi Leonard can stay healthy all season and most of their depth can stay healthy, that'll be huge for them. They've also, they also added uh, John Wall in the off season. We'll see how good he actually is, but if he's even, uh, you know, half a player as he was, uh, you know, just a few seasons ago after being hurt for a long time, then I think he can be a great piece that's added to that team. Um, So I think the, the, the Clippers can be the best team in that conference. uh, But, but Paul George and Kawhi, Kawhi Leonard have to stay healthy, obviously for that team. Uh, that team only goes as far as as healthy as those team those two players are for the rest of the season. And then Golden State, obviously defending champions, uh, best team in the league on paper. I would say they they added Dante Divincenzo and Jermichael Green. They did lose Otto Porter Jr. and Gary Payton the second. Uh, those are big losses as well. And uh, Juan Toscano Anderson and Damian Lee as well. Uh, those those are big losses. I would say just in terms of depth for the for the uh, for the Warriors. But uh, again, we saw them play last night and it didn't seem like they really missed a whole lot. Uh, they were the best defensive team in the league last year. I don't think that's going to change too much because they still have a guy like Draymond Green commanding a lot of uh, the defensive effort on there. And um, I, you know, like I said last night, it didn't look like they were really missing any sort of step uh, on either side of the ball. So, uh, you, know, you know, Warriors easily one of the top teams in the league. I would not be surprised to see them make it either. And then the other one, the other wild card in the West the Phoenix Suns, a lot of people are maybe expecting a step back from the Phoenix Suns. They finished 64 and 18. So, you know, a step back would be expected because that's one of the great uh, regular season finishes of all time. Um, but they lost Damian Lee, Jock Lant, or excuse me, they, they uh, lost JaVale McGee, uh, Aaron Holiday, and Alfred Payton. Uh, a little bit of depth lost there for sure, especially a guy behind a guy like Paul, uh, Chris Paul, who's, you know, uh, as much as we want to don't want to say it, uh, he is injury prone. Uh, but, you know, this is still a very solid team. They still got DeAndre and they still got Devin Booker, still got Chris Paul, obviously. Um, and we'll see what they can do, but they did lose a little bit of depth, especially with JaVale McGee, who ended up being a pretty solid defensive force down low for them. Um, but we'll see what happens. They did lose a little bit of depth, and I think they are kind of the wild card team out west, like they were last year, I would say. I think a lot of people came into last season thinking the same thing, that they would be more of a middle-of-the-pack team, and they ended up just you know, stomping and blowing past everybody in the West for the one seed. Um, So we'll see what happens there. The Grizzlies are also a a team that's interesting out of the West uh, finishes the two seed last year, way ahead of expectations more so than what anybody I think uh, thought from the Memphis Grizzlies behind John Morant. They added Danny green, who I think in my opinion is always a solid ad, especially for a guy that can space the floor like him. He's a great shooting guard. One of the great three point shooters of our era, even though he doesn't get, you know, the ball is often as a guy like Steph Curry or anything like that, or Ray Allen or what have you. He's still a very solid three and D guy, um, but they did lose Kyle Anderson, the Anthony Melton and Jarrett Culver guys that, you know, were expected to kind of move on their way, but they, that is depth there and important pieces that did, that they did lose as well. So uh, we'll see what happens with the Grizzlies. I think they might, I don't want to say they take a step back, but I think, I don't think they perform as high as they did last year. So I guess that's maybe a step back. It's it's more of a step back because their expectations were blown so far ahead 
from last year. They they finished so much better than they thought they were, and then I think a lot of people thought they were going to finish last year. That I think they maybe uh, they take a step back in that sense that they're not going to blow everybody out of the water like they did last year. So I think they still have a chance to be a three seed or something like that, a top three seed. I don't think they're going to finish uh, first. I don't think they'll be a one seed, but I think a top three seed between two and three or something like that wouldn't surprise me. Or a four seed. Uh, you know, I think home field advantage is a good as a uh, as a decent a decent uh, decent target to aim for if they're the Memphis Grizzlies. And then finally, Denver Nuggets. I really kind of don't know what to expect out of this team, to be honest with you. Uh, they added Contavious Caldwell-Pope, Bruce Brown, DeAndre Jordan, Ish Smith. Bruce Brown and Contavious Caldwell-Pope are good additions. Uh, they lost Monte Morris, Will Barton, Joe Michael Green, Austin Rivers, Brian Forbes, and Facundo Campazzo. Campazzo. Um, I don't know what to expect out of this team. Uh, Jamal Murray, Michael Porter, they'll be back. Porter missed, I think, all but 10 games last season or something like that. Jamal Murray didn't play at all last season. But Jamal Murray, I think a lot of people would agree, is one of the best two guards in the league. And um, and Michael Porter, one of the better small forwards in the league as well when he stays healthy. But those are the big question marks. Murray hasn't played in 18 months, and he's looked you know, more or less a little rusty in the preseason. So it'll be interesting to see how long it takes for him to get his wheels under him uh, during the regular season. And we also don't know how they're going to look on defense, their ability to guard elite offenses or anything like that. Nikola Jokic, one of the arguably the best player in the league, I would say, all around. But he's not necessarily the best defender. Neither is Jamal Murray. Neither is Michael Porter. When they're all three out there, they're not the best defensive team, I would say. So uh, I don't know what to expect from this team. To be honest with you, uh, they could contend for a one seed if everything is clicking. Three uh, perennial, you know, Jamal Murray, Michael Porter could be an all star. Nikola Jokic is an MVP. Three of those guys clicking on all cylinders together. Yeah, that's a scary team. They should be able to contend for a one seed, obviously. But if they run into injury problems with Jamal Murray, Michael Porter, even Nikola Jokic or anything like that, then they've got real question marks because I don't know how much of the depth that they have uh, can actually hold them up above water for that long. I think they need all three of those guys in order to really be the best team in the West and contend for a championship. So I don't know what to expect out of this team. I think they can. All in all, I, I think Jamal Murray will probably end up missing time or Michael Porter will end up missing time just because they have uh, maybe Jamal Murray less. So he's missed 18 months, obviously. So there is cost con- for cost for concern there. Um, but Michael Porter has been more injury prone. So I think it's safe to say at some point, one of those guys is probably going to sit out for at least a little bit of time. And that makes them lose a couple of games. So I wouldn't be surprised to see them with a middle seed heading into the playoffs towards the end of the year. So. I don't know. Uh, the Nuggets are an interesting team. They 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 really are a wild card in the in the in the in the Western Conference as much as the the Phoenix Suns are. But the Phoenix Suns obviously have a little bit more of a track record when it comes to uh, making the playoffs and coming out and exceeding expectations, if you will. So um, yeah, we'll see what the Nuggets. We'll see what the rest of the NBA. It's finally started. We got the two games last night, and it's officially underway. Uh, NBA season is back. Great time of year. The middle of October. We got baseball going on. Playoff baseball. We got the middle of NFL season. NBA is kicking off. There's really no time like the fall in American sports. And uh, it's all happening right now. It's the best time of year. The best time of year, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, That is going to wrap up the show today, I think. Uh, Thank you very much for tuning in. I apologize for my voice again. There are a couple instances where I got the frog in my my throat or something like that. I tried to cut out as much as I could. Um, But I apologize again. A little under the weather, but we should be back at full strength come next week. Next Tuesday. Next Tuesday. It won't be on a Wednesday next week. It'll be on a Tuesday. So make sure you stay tuned for that. Um, Thank you very much for tuning in, ladies and gentlemen. I've been your host, James Timberlake, and this has been the Weekend Sports Wrap Podcast.